Well, guys, I want to start by sharing uh, a, a little bit vulnerably this morning. So for those of you who've known me more than just a little while, you know that um, I am generally not overly afraid of confrontation. Uh, in fact, there have been times in my life where I seem to have thrived on confrontation. But unfortunately, a lot of the confrontation that I found myself embroiled in was not very courageous. It was actually kind of a, a weak kind of confrontation where you just basically take whatever is inside and just throw it out at the other person and let them deal with it however they may. Unfortunately, that's the kind of confrontation that I had become accustomed to uh, as a young boy. In fact, I remember in, in fifth grade, we, at lunch, we would sit at these long tables in the cafeteria with benches, and to pass the time, the boys would sit together, and we would have what we called cut-down contests. Basically, who can insult the other people the best? And let me tell you, I usually won. I was really good at these cut-down contests. And this was just, you know, what do boys do? They just make fun of each other, insult each other. My, Sonia says, now you tell me this? This was not in the prenuptial agreement. This was not disclosed before we got married. I got over that period, but some of the effects lingered. But today, we're not talking about that kind of confrontation. We're not talking about insults, and we're not talking about uh, just uh, emotional regurgitation of whatever it is that you have inside and laying it on someone else. We're talking about courageous confrontation, which is an entirely different way of engaging with people. And the reason that we have to talk about courageous confrontation is that as we go through this study on how it is that we grow, this will realize is an essential element to any kind of growth that you might encounter. Now, we've talked about the different types of soil elements that we need to, to really have the enriched soil necessary to grow. And one of those soil elements is joy. And we're going to talk about the relationship between joy and confrontation, and it may not be what you expect. We're going to talk about love, and we, ha we have talked about love, and that's one of the elements in the soil that helps us grow. And we're going to talk about group identity, and how that's an element in the soil that helps us grow, but how courageous confrontation, healthy confrontation, is actually a way in which God allows us to bring all those elements together, reinforce them, and use them so that we can change. Now, I shared with you in a previous message that, I guess it was about a year ago, I read a book all about how to become an expert at anything. It was basically, what is the process for anyone to take in any field to become an expert in that field? It's not saying that you'll be the best ever at it, but you'll truly be an expert. And one of the things that it talked about was intentional practice. And intentional practice had a couple of elements. One, you always needed to be doing something, trying to do something new that you can't do. So it's one thing, if any of you have played tennis, I've played a little tennis. Anyone here play tennis? Uh, you learn to serve the ball, and then if you're like me, then you just serve it poorly for the rest of your life. But you serve it well enough to get it over the net and play tennis. And look, that's fine. If you want to play tennis for fun, Getting the ball over the net is a great start. But if you want to be an expert tennis player, then what you need is to constantly be trying to serve better than you served before. And so you have to keep in training your body to do something that it's not yet doing. 
So you have to push into new territory. But the other thing you need is a constant feedback loop. This is why the greatest players in the world can be coached by people who are not as good as they are. Because they need someone to say, here's what you're doing wrong, and here's how you can make it right. And without that feedback loop, you can never improve to become an expert. That's that courageous correction that we're talking about. So, why do I use the word courageous? Why do I say courageous? Well, imagine that you are um, a 10-year-old child again. And you're sitting in the classroom, and your teacher puts this on the board. 1 plus 1 equals 3. Now, what you might do at first is snicker or laugh, or you might be the kind of personality where you start to get really nervous, or you might start to feel a lot of compassion and sorrow for your teacher who put the wrong thing on the board. There's different ones of us out there, right? But imagine in a classroom of 30 kids being the one to raise your hand and say, um, teacher, you got that wrong. What might happen? I remember being in a situation like this Two very different ones, both involving teachers, both of the same teacher. This was in high school. She was my geometry teacher. The first one was she was doing a problem on the board, and she did it wrong. And I was thinking, is anyone else going to say something? Is anyone going to do anything about this? And what normally happens? No one does anything about it. Why? Because it requires a little bit of courage. It's not easy to tell someone that they did something wrong. And then what happens in your head is you start to think, wait, maybe I'm doing it wrong. And if I say something, then I'll look silly. Instead of her looking like she doesn't know what she's doing, I'll look like I don't know what I'm doing. Have you ever been there? And then you start to think, well, let me go through this a hundred times and see if I'm right. And then finally I raised my hand and I said, um, excuse me, <laughs> I think you got that wrong. And she looked at it and sure enough it was wrong and she corrected it. She handled it so well. This same teacher one time, this is a little more embarrassing for her, she was my homeroom teacher and my second period teacher in, for math. Homeroom, I noticed her pants were unzipped. I'm thinking, who's going to say something? I'm not going to say something. This is all kinds of awkward, right? All kinds of awkward. So I said nothing in homeroom. And I thought, surely she'll notice. I come back to second period, no, she has not noticed. So, what, so then I go to her very discreetly and I say, excuse me, your pants are unzipped. And of course she thanked me, she zipped them on with the day. But isn't it weird how those are scary moments? Have you ever experienced that kind of thing when it comes to correcting someone or fixing something? Well, I think there's a couple of realities related to correcting someone or confronting someone. Is one, it, it might take some time so sometimes uh, you think ah, it's not worth going through the process of correcting someone because uh, it's going to end up taking, it's going to be this long, drawn-out thing potentially. Have you ever known someone that correcting them is a long, drawn-out thing? My wife knows someone who correcting them is a long, drawn-out thing. This is a reality. Sometimes it can result in conflict. A lot of people don't like to be corrected. A lot of people don't like to be corrected. And so it's scary. It's scary to go up to someone and say, look, you're, you're actually wrong, and here's why. And so we need to have a bit of courage. We need to be willing to take a risk. 
Well, okay, that's why it requires that we be courageous, but um, ultimately, the reason is that correcting someone, confronting someone, requires that we face shame. Who here loves shame? I hate shame. I don't like shame at all. And you know what? It's not just the shame of the person being confronted. I felt ashamed telling my teacher that her pants were unzipped. I felt ashamed telling her that her math was wrong. It's a weird, strange thing. Is that shame gets in this whole process and what we have to learn, and we're going to talk about shame a little bit later, is we have to learn how to deal with shame, how to respond to shame. But this is why it requires so much courage. Because it is scary. It is difficult to confront people. You know, I can't tell you how many times someone has come to my office and said, do you know what such and such and so and so in the church did? And I say, no, I didn't know. I can't believe they would do that. And then I would ask them, this person, what are you going to do about it? And they say, you need to do something about this. I said, well, I wasn't there when it happened. What should I tell them? Should I tell them that you told me what they did? No, don't tell them that. Well, then what am I supposed to do? My hands are tied. You know what the Bible says? The Bible says you're supposed to tell them. <laughs> well, I can't do that, Pastor. People are afraid of confrontation. But it's necessary. Why is it necessary? Because the only way to learn anything is to make a mistake and then to be corrected. Going back to our tennis illustration, if you don't serve incorrectly and have someone tell you how to serve correctly, then you'll never serve correctly. In fact, if you don't make a mistake, you can't learn anything at all. You ever thought about that? You know, sometimes we get so caught up in our own mistakes and we think how horrible our mistakes are. But you have to remember that without mistakes, you can't grow. It's literally impossible. If you're not making a stake, making a mistake, what you're doing is you're remaining in your comfort zone, and so you're just doing the things you already know how to do well. It's only when you try to do things that you're not good at that you make mistakes, and that's also the only way to learn something new. Whether it's math, whether it's music, whether it's sports, or whether it's your life with Christ. So for example, a lot of times when people come to me and tell me what so-and-so and such-and-such -and -such did, and no, of course, it was no one in this room. The, the problem is that they're afraid to make a mistake. They're afraid to do it wrong. They're afraid to get in an argument. They're afraid to be beaten down. They're afraid to be challenged. They're afraid to X, Y, Z. But they'll never grow unless they try, unless they experience it, unless they grow through it with the Lord and see that the Lord will carry them through and be with them. You know, this is so important. So without mistakes, there's no learning. But without correction, there's no learning. And so if we were to define character, and I love, this is straight from the book, The Other Half of Church, how they define character. Character is when we respond and react to something with an example from our history of observed responses. We can only do what we've seen done. And then we have to match that up with the values of who my people are and what it is that we do. And when your brain can find a connection between something you've seen done well and it aligns with your value of the values of your people, then you respond 
and you react to the moment. Now, all of this is happening at six cycles per second. Remember that right side of your brain, that fast track side of your brain is going faster than your conscious mind. So you can't see it at work. And this is why someone can approach you, say something to you, and then you have a visceral reaction before you even realize what you're saying. And before you know it, you're either angry or you're defending yourself or you're, uh, or you're joyful. You don't even have time to process it consciously, but your brain has already lined up a response it's seen before with who it is to be you and your people. And so we are the people of Christ. Remember we talked about group identity last week. So our group identity is found in Jesus Christ and in the gospel. And I would suggest that all of our character issues, all of our morality, all of our, of our ethics are wrapped up in Jesus and the gospel. I think that's how the Bible treats it. So that's our identity. So then the question is, what are the responses that we can draw from? What are the examples that we have? You know, this is why Paul says, follow my example, just like I follow Christ's. Paul is saying, look at me to see how to act in difficult situations. Watch me to see how to respond when things don't go the way you hope they'll go. And you can do that because I'm watching Jesus and the way he responded, the way he reacted. And I've learned to follow him. And so you can follow me. This is so important. You need to have examples in your life of how to do the right thing. So we've talked about this already, but let's just hone in on that for a moment. If you grew up in a family where whenever someone was confronted, they responded with anger or defensiveness, those are your examples. That's what you have to draw from unless there's someone outside your family that you actually watch them deal with confrontation. But let's be honest, how often do we see people dealing with confrontation? How often do we get to see someone confronted in the moment and then respond? And I would add, how much less do we see someone confronted and see them respond well? This is crucial. If you don't have an example to match up to your identity of who you are, then you can't respond the right way. You know, we've been led to believe that when people don't respond well, what they need is just to be told, you need to try better. You need to do more. You obviously don't care. But what we're learning is that's not really the case. There's actually a deficiency somewhere along the line, maybe through no fault of your own where you simply do not have the resources that are necessary to respond the way you need to respond or that God invites you to respond. So then what do you do? Well, you need to find some examples. You need to find some resources, some people, and you need to have a community that's willing to go through this process of confrontation and also is willing to respond well in it so that we can all learn together how to do this. Now, there is a reality, though, that when we go into this world of confrontation that we run the risk of actually making things worse. Has anyone ever made a situation worse by confronting someone's error? Yeah, yeah, it, it's happened to a lot of us. Well, one of the reasons is that when we confront someone, we are very often tempted to use what we call toxic shame. 
Toxic shame is when you confront someone in their error, but you leave them alone in it. They feel isolated. They feel, uh, they feel like no one's with them in the difficult moment. Toxic shame also gives the message to the person, you are bad. I know, unfortunately, some of us in this room grew up and our parents would say things like, you always mess up. You'll never amount to anything. You're good for nothing. You know, this is the message of toxic shame. And it also never offers a solution. It never offers a way forward. It just leaves you in the moment with no hope, no path out of the situation you're in. You imagine, or maybe you've experienced it, but you imagine a small child being told you'll never amount to anything, and then that's the end of the conversation. And they're just left to question, is that true? Will I never amount to anything? Am I really good for nothing? No hope, no resource, no help. But healthy shame, because there is such a thing as healthy shame, sometimes we have the mistaken notion that all shame is bad, but actually God talks about shame and the use of shame and the benefits of shame in the scripture. Healthy shame affirms the relationship first. Healthy shame says not you are bad, but you messed up. Healthy shame shares this group identity. It shares how we do things. It gives either a verbal or a visual example of the right way to do it. And so healthy shame doesn't have to leave you alone, isolated, and wondering if you can ever get better. Healthy shame can actually compel you to move into the better. Because remember, shame, shame is not some evil thing. It's really just the emotion that you feel when you realize that you're not bringing joy to someone else. It's when you look in someone's face and they look at you and it's not joy, that's when you start to feel shame. It could be anger. It could be disappointment. Uh, you know, any number of feelings could be coming from another person. But when it's not joy, you start, you start to feel this sadness and, and you start to question you know, what is the status of our relationship? What is the nature of our, of our love here? And so the feeling is actually, we've talked about this so many times, your feelings are really just like your physical feelings. They're just sensors that alert you to what's going on in the world around you. They're not good or bad. How you respond to them can be good or bad, but they're not good or bad. They're gifts from the Lord. You know, when you touch something hot, thank goodness it hurts because, or thank God it hurts because then you pull your finger away before it's burned, right? And when you experience shame, thank God because then you're alerted to the fact that, that you're probably doing something that's hurting the relationship. And then you can readjust. You can pull back. Unless it's that toxic shame. Toxic shame doesn't allow you to pull back. Toxic shame uh, forces you into 
isolation, defensiveness. Now here's the problem. A lot of us have experienced so much toxic shame that when someone brings us healthy shame, we respond as if it's still toxic shame. Someone can affirm the relationship, right? They can uh, just say, you messed up instead of you are bad. And they can share what, what it's like us to do, but because of your own internal reaction, you just assume or you jump to the conclusion that it's toxic. And so we need to practice breaking from this response. And I mean practice. Just like that serve, you need to be corrected in how you respond to shame, and you need to practice responding to shame in a different way. And there are a whole lot of ways we can talk about doing that. We're going to talk about some in a little bit. All right, so when we accept healthy shame, here's the, weird, here's the really cool thing, is that you actually feel better, not worse. Have you ever had a moment where someone confronted you, you were able to say, I'm so sorry that happened, and then the relationship felt stronger than it did before the, the, the bad thing ever happened? You ever experienced that? You feel better afterwards than you felt before. You're actually building joy. You're not destroying joy when you accept healthy shame. And then you grow closer to the other person, not further apart. And finally, you build character. You don't remain stuck in the same bad character that you had before. So the benefits of accepting healthy shame are huge. And this is, this is why, you know, and we're going to look at what Jesus has to say about confronting people, but this is why it's so important that we be willing to enter into this challenging, scary process of confronting people courageously in a healthy way because it increases joy, it builds relationship, it produces good character. All these good fruit, all this good fruit comes from it. Now, what are the things that we need to do to have this kind of response? Well, I already hit on them, but look, if we're going to confront people well, <coughs> the first thing we need to do is um, actually we're going to look at the, um, I would say the first thing we I should have a slide for this the first thing we do is we reaffirm the relationship right so we start with something like this we we it's an inclusive term it's one that says I'm part of you you're part of me you're part of us we're all part of you and then it needs to have some new model for how to do things the right way so we're going to do things like this. And then I would suggest that when you do that, go into detail. Be specific. Here's how we do things. We don't do it the way you've done it. We're doing it this different way. And so it's saying, it's saying there's this new model. Because remember, your character is the matching up of, it, of examples that you've seen with what it's like your people to do. So if you don't have the example, then you can't do what it's like your people to do. And so you need some type of example. Now sometimes the example can be observed visually. You see someone having uh, a difficult situation and responding well, and you're like, oh, people can actually do this. Sometimes it's that verbal, specific encouragement of how to do it differently. So, you know, you think of some, some examples of this. Um, a lot of times people, they, when, they, 
they come to faith, they struggle to know how to pray. So it would be one thing to say, you need to pray more. Why are you not praying? If you don't pray, you're not going to grow. God only loves people who pray. You know, so we, I hear stuff like this. You know, but what if you were actually to say, you know what? We're going to work on this together. Let me show you how to pray. Or let me tell you how to pray. Jesus shows us how to pray. Why don't we look at how Jesus shows us how to pray? You know, it, it provides this new way to do things, a new model. Uh, but also, it shares the values of my people, our people, us. What is it like us to do? What is it like us to do? Well, it's like us to pray the way Jesus prayed. So there's not just a model, there's a value in there. And I think a lot of times our correction does not include these things. A lot of times we focus on what someone is doing wrong, and we don't really focus so much on how to do things well or do them right. Now, as an individual, you can do some of this yourself. So one of the things that I've learned is that when I do something poorly, and I, I don't always do this well, and I don't always do it out loud, but I often do it in my head afterwards. When I do something poorly, so let's say uh, I, snapped, I snapped at someone in my family because I was irritated. What I want to say is, ah, oh, I wish I hadn't done that. What I wish I had done was that I wish I had responded by saying da-da-da-da-da, and I'm specific. This is how I wish I'd responded. What I'm doing is I'm giving myself a model for how to respond well. So I'm training my brain to come up with that solution instead of the bad one. So let me just give you a very specific example. One of the things that we're going to look at in the next chapter is this difference between people who protect the weakness of others and people who exploit the weakness of others. And we've all seen people exploit the weakness of others. And we've seen it in our workplaces. We've seen it in politics. We've probably seen it in our own homes from time to time or more often than that. But what would one of these corrections look like? Well, start with affirming the relationship. We, we, not you, we. Well, we what? And be very clear. We do not take advantage of people and their weaknesses. So here's the wrong behavior taking advantage of people and their weaknesses. But we don't do that. So there's a very clear correction. Sometimes because we don't like confrontation, we tend to beat around the bush. We say, hey, I wasn't really happy with the way that went down. Maybe you could try better next time. But it's really important to be incredibly specific. We do not take advantage of people and their weaknesses. And then you give an alternative. Rather... We protect people in their weaknesses. This is what we do. This is our value. And if you wanted to be specific to the situation, even better. So if you saw that uh, you know, someone made a mistake and the other person pointed it out and laughed at them, right? that might happen from time to time uh, among your children or with people that you work with or you know, it might even happen in your home. You say, hey, we don't take advantage of people and their weaknesses. We don't laugh at people when they make a mistake. Instead, what we do is that we come around people and honor them in their weaknesses. And so we offer to help them. Or we give a gentle correction. Or we say, hey, that's totally fine to make a mistake. That's how we learn. You see, get very specific. 
And then I would add, this is not in our book, but I would add, if you can tie this to the gospel, all the better. Why do we protect people in their weakness? Because Jesus cared for us in our weakness. You see, one of the things that the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter and, and even John to some degree, but Paul especially, Paul always, before he gives an instruction on how to live, he talks about who we are, who Jesus is, and what Jesus has done for us. So if you might recall, uh, there's this passage in Romans, I think it's the one in Romans, where Jesus is, or Paul is telling the people, you know, that he's responding to them um, whether they should eat meat or not. Romans 14. Romans 14, yeah. And he says, look, um, you know, there's some people who think that you shouldn't, and there's some people who think you should. The people who think you shouldn't eat the meat, he calls them weak brothers. And the reason he calls them weak brothers is because they're not firm enough in their trust in Christ for their holiness, their righteousness, that they're caught up in these controversies, controversies of the day. They also tend to get caught up on special days of the week, or holy days. Some of them uh, were probably Gentiles who were trying to follow Jewish custom and law because they thought that would make them more holy. But really, Christ was all they needed, so Paul calls them a weak brother. And then there's people who think it's fine to eat the meat or to not honor these holy days, and Paul calls them the strong brother because they're the ones who are trusting enough in Jesus Christ that they don't need to add to their faith these other things for their salvation or for God to love them. Now, it's specific to a circumstance going on in that church. Uh, it's not always true that the people with more license are the strong ones. Sometimes the people with more license are the weak ones. But in that circumstance, it's how it played out. So Paul says, but if you are the strong brother, do not let your license destroy your weaker brother, whom Christ died for. He's saying if Christ died for them on the cross, then you can't eat meat with them because you'll destroy them by your license. By your freedom in Christ, you'll destroy them. And you'll, you'll um, basically overturn the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. So he ties whether you eat meat or not to Jesus dying on the cross. And I would suggest that almost every time you can do that. I said earlier that that our, the core of our identity is Jesus Christ and the gospel. There's really no moral issue that we'll face that's not tied to the gospel and tied to Jesus Christ. And so if you can show how it's because Jesus X, Y, Z, or because the gospel does this or that, you know, we don't, and this is, I, I share this one a lot, because honestly this is one of my huge struggles. We don't respond defensively when someone corrects us. We don't. We receive correction as a gift from God because it helps us to grow because Jesus has already forgiven us all our sins, so we have no shame, we have no condemnation because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you can confront me and I shouldn't fall to pieces because I've already been redeemed and forgiven. Now, I don't always do that, but that's what it's like us to do to do these things. All right, so let's look at what Jesus says about this. Well, here's this interesting passage in Matthew 18 where Jesus says, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. 
This is the one I was referencing earlier. Uh, in this passage, Jesus doesn't even say if they sin against you. He says if they sin, go confront them. And if you, if you win them over, that's great. Man, wonderful outcome. He says if they're not convinced, then go with one or two other people. This is what the Old Testament refers to when it talks about in the presence of two or three witnesses. So now there's two or three of you going to this person to confront them in their error, in their sin, and you try to win them over. If it still doesn't work, you take it to the whole church. And the whole church, the whole community will stand and confront them in their error and their sin. And if they still will not repent, he says essentially, uh, treat them as you would an unbeliever. Because they, there's something missing there. They don't have something of the Holy Spirit and of Christ in them because they're not responding to the entire church confronting them in their sin. So how do you treat an unbeliever? Well, you share the gospel with them. You pray for their salvation. You know, he's not just saying treat them like an outcast. He's saying treat them like someone who's not a believer in Jesus Christ because there's something missing there. But all this is predicated on the idea that you should confront people who are in error and who are in sin. He has a very similar passage in Luke. It's in a different context, but the basic idea is the same. He says, if your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them. Well, Jesus, how many times should I forgive my brother? Seven times? Seventy times seven, he says, or 77 times. Basically, don't put a limit on it. Now, I don't know if you guys ever see uh, Christians squabble online, but one of the most common ways that I see Christians squabble online is where someone calls someone else out, and then that person says, uh, well, he who has without sin cast the first stone. Or, do not judge, lest ye be judged. And they get into this thing where they're calling that person out for judging, in which they are judging that person and calling them out. It's incredibly hypocritical and circular, and if it weren't so serious, it would be laughable. But this is so common. But do you know what Jesus says in that passage? So this is in... Um, uh, I forget where the passage is because I forgot to change the reference on my slide. It's not in Luke 17. Uh, but when Jesus says, judge not lest ye be judged, and he says, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? And people love to quote that, and they love to stop. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He says, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Jesus isn't saying, you're a sinner, so you can never confront a sinner. He's saying, you're a sinner, so make some changes in your life, and then you can help other people change also. Do you see the huge difference? By the way, Paul also tells us that we are to judge people, particularly people in the church. He says that. You are to judge people in the church. And Jesus says, take the speck out of your, the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. 
So even in the verses, even in the passages where Jesus warns us against judging others, he still tells us that we need to confront one another. Isn't that interesting? So let's do some practice. Um, we're going to use this model where we start with we. We affirm the relationship. We're going to state clearly what it is that we do not do. And then we're going to give an alternative that we do. And if possible, we'll say why it is that we do that thing. And if we can tie it to the gospel, even better. So this is audience participation time. So um, it doesn't have to be autobiographical, but it may. And if it is, you don't even have to tell us. But think of an area where someone uh, has done something wrong and you felt like you ought to confront them. It's free, free open, open season on people who make errors here. Anyone? Paul. Yeah, let me just repeat that. So someone who's just living in fear, they're always afraid something horrible is going to happen. They're ultimately living in bondage because of that fear, and yet they claim to be in Christ. And so you wonder, what's going on here? And, and you know, by the way, this is really helpful because it's not just in, in sin. We could, we could have a discussion whether that's sinful or not, and Jesus does, and the Bible does say things about not living in fear. But there's also just um, sometimes where people just aren't, aren't really living out the fullness of what God has offered them in the gospel. All right, so what would our we do not statement be? Anybody? We, we do not, what's that? Yeah, we do not live in fear. We could expand on that, absolutely, right? We do not avoid uh, the opportunity for good things because we're afraid something bad will happen. You know, any number of examples. You don't have to put it the way anyone else puts it. But rather, we what? What do we do instead of living in fear? Walk through it, walk in faith, trust Jesus, embrace life, absolutely. Hope for good things. And you can tailor it to the specific circumstances of that person because everyone probably exhibits this in a different way. We do not crouch in fear, but we walk in boldness. Because why? Why do we do this? Why are we able as God's people to do this? Because Jesus has overcome the world. What else? Because God's word says, fear not, for I am with you. Man, we don't walk in fear. We walk in boldness because God is with us. And we know God is with us because we saw that he gave us his son in our deepest time of fear, in our deepest um, moment of tragedy and despair. And you see, what's another example? That was great. What's another example? Yeah, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of love, power, and a sound mind. 
Let's do another, let's do another um, example of a, of a thing that might need to be corrected. Can you think of one? Are you saying lie? Like someone's lying? Yeah, we do not lie. We are not dishonest with one another. Rather, what? Hmm? Yeah, we're honest, we speak with integrity, we speak truth. Because? Because Jesus was honest? Because Jesus tells us that the truth sets us free? Because Jesus is the truth and we walk in him? Now, let me ask you, how would you feel being confronted that way rather than saying, I'm so sick of you lying to me, stop? Now, look, sometimes that is a completely understandable response to someone lying to you again, but it is an incredibly ineffective response to someone lying to you again. It just forces them into shame, toxic shame. They withdraw. And often what they'll do is they justify themselves and get angry at you, and they somehow decide that it's your fault. But it's hard to get angry at someone consistently when they say, hey, we don't, we don't lie to one another. We, we tell the truth because Jesus is truth. And the, we've been freed from lies. And even when the truth brings something hard to us, and something difficult to us, we can face that because we've been forgiven by Jesus so we know we're not going to be condemned. We can be received in love in one another. It's very different. Yeah, how? Yeah, so Howard's saying maybe we do the do not do this at the end. Now, absolutely, anyone, any one of you can find, may find that you have a different little arrangement or take on this. But I know there is an intentionality to talking about what you ought to do last because that's the thing that you leave them with. And you talk about what they ought not to do first, and then you move past that into what they ought to do. And so that's the thing that's kind of left. Sonia. Yeah. Here, so she, Sonia is saying she's thinking about tone and body language when you share things like that. So if you do it with an angry face and disconnected body language, it sounds what judgmental. And so this is yeah. I mean, if your heart is not feeling. Um, togetherness with that person they will know it and so there is an element that we need to be trained how to confront in a way that doesn't bring judgment but brings uh, again it needs to say to the person we're with you in this yep 
because I want to, I'm not going to forget everything. She's saying that we can learn to confront people like this with love in our eyes, saying we're in this together, uh, I'm with you, and that even with like a child, for example, you might get down on their level, hold their chin, hold their face. Um, uh, you might do that with not a child, you know, like I'm with you in this. And, and I will say I've seen Sonia grow incredibly in this area. She has had a ton of practice confronting people, person, and uh, she has grown mightily in this area of doing it in love. And, you know, I don't want to take all the credit for her growth, but let's just say, let's just say she's had a coach who was not as good as she was who was able to give her that. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, yeah, it can be done. It can be done. Yeah, Tony. Yeah, let me share that with those who are at home who couldn't hear. Uh, Tony was just saying that he spent years in his company being exposed to toxins. And he was just saying, I, I know what toxins can do to the human body. But so this whole toxic shame thing, over time, it has a destructive force. But he was reminded of what Paul says. He says, the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead is in you. And he was talking about this, the aroma of Christ and how it counteracts the effects of toxicity and toxins. And that it can actually, I guess the idea is that this is, um, you know, something that can bring us back from that place of toxicity. And that really, and I think this is the hope for those of us who respond poorly to good shame messages. So again, that's one of my big struggles. I have a hard time responding well to good shame messages. Is that I can grow through that by the power of the Holy Spirit in me. I can, and through work and through feedback, I can actually become a different kind of person and that toxicity can be expelled from my spirit and from my body and I can, can walk in that healthy place again. So thank you, Tony. That's huge. Shall we do one more exercise? Let's get a juicy one. Okay. Mary's got a juicy one. We do not gossip. Oh, yeah, it's, I'm so glad that no one, that we do not gossip. That's so fantastic. No, we do not gossip. Um, uh, let's, do, let's do the response version on the bottom. I like that it is like us too. It's just another way of bringing this into our group identity rather than just saying we, but it is like us too. So we do not gossip. Rather, it is like us to what? Rather, we it is like us to encourage one another in the Lord. What's another rather we statement? Yeah. 
we don't share personal information. I think I might put it something like this. Uh, rather, it is like us to protect one another's secrets. Um, because sometimes we share one another's information. Um, or rather, it is like us to protect other people's information unless we know it's okay for us to share it. You know? We do not gossip in the form of prayer requests. Rather, rather we share our own weaknesses in our prayer requests. So you can go a lot of different ways with this. You know, I remember uh, Sonia and I sometimes still laugh about it. There was a time here in our church, this was years ago when we first came, every prayer request was about either someone else that was not in our church being sick or someone else not in our church traveling. That's what we prayed about, people who are sick and traveling mercies. But we have intentionally said, no, we want to pray for the real things going on in your life. And I was talking to Beth the other day. She said, I wish, I wish that I was overwhelmed with prayer requests every week. We really do want to pray for you, but it's hard to share our weaknesses with one another. But it is like us to share our weaknesses with one another because Jesus was weak for us on the cross and he overcame it by the power of the Holy Spirit and that same spirit is within us. Right, do you see how this kind of works as it works out here? It's profoundly simple and also incredibly um, it, it, when you think about the implications of the gospel related to all these things, it really is profound. So we don't gossip because Jesus died on the cross? Yeah, that's right. We don't we don't gossip because Jesus died on the cross. We bear before others our own weaknesses instead of dragging other people's weaknesses before others. We don't gossip because we honor one another because Christ honored us. Any other ways to handle that gossip one? We don't gossip. Rather, it is like us to take people's needs to the Lord because he's the one who can handle the things they're facing or the challenges they face. That's wonderful, Becca. It's such a different way, isn't it? Now, here's the thing. If you're going to be the kind of person that gives these healthy, courageous confrontations... You also need to be the kind of person to receive healthy, courageous confrontations. But it is easier when someone talks to you this way. I shared with our small group the other day, Sonia gave me one of these, and I was so happy when she did it. Partly because I was thinking, hey, at least someone is paying attention to what we're doing. But also, it just had such a different tone. And what happened, I... We, we made this stewed chicken, pollo guisado, and I had it every day for five days because it is so good, and we made a lot of it. But on the fifth day, there was one serving left, and I got my serving, and I ate it in front of her. And she said, oh, I would have wanted to have some of that. I said, oh, I didn't know. I'm so sorry. She said, yeah, but you didn't ask. I said, I know it's the fifth day. I just didn't want it to go bad. I, I thought I was helping out, not wasting food. She said, but it's not, it's not like us to make assumptions. It's like us to communicate with one another. And I was like, yes, that is so true. And it didn't feel condemning at all. It felt like, 
oh yeah, that's what we do. I can do that. It just had a totally different tone and flavor to it. Thank you. Um, then she noted that I didn't even give her the rest of my serving of the pollo guisado. <laughs> but that never, if she had asked, I promise you I would have given it to her. It never came up in the conversation. That just came up in our small group, which did cause me immense levels of shame in front of other people. No, not at all. So look, you have to practice. You can literally ask people, can you practice confronting me with something right now so I can respond well? Why not? It's great fun. Yeah, it's like, hey, would you rather watch a movie or would you rather confront each other and respond well so we can practice? Oh, let's confront each other. Yeah, just be careful when you do that because you might get some very serious uh, confrontations that you weren't expecting. What? Yeah, game, we'll do it as a game night here at the church. I like that. Oh. So here's the deal. My takeaway is this. Courageous confrontation is a necessary part of growing. This is not optional, people. You will never grow if you cannot give and receive correction. And, I, and literally, both of them. You have to grow in order to give it, and you have to grow in order to receive it. But you have to give it in order to grow, and you have to receive it in order to grow. It's one of those things. Like you, I, I, I'm still learning new things on guitar. I'm learning things that I didn't know how to do. But I have to do them poorly in order to learn to do them well. You have to. So my options are really two options. I can not try or I can try and fail until I get it right. It doesn't matter what you're doing. It doesn't matter if it's the guitar or if it's, or if it's some area of character in your life with Christ. It's the same. So it's necessary. It always affirms the relationship. It clearly states the wrong behavior. Do not chicken out on that. And it models a better way. When received well, joy and love flourish. So it's got our, I mean, this, it brings in our group identity. It brings in joy. It brings in love. And when you add in this piece of courageous confrontation that kind of brings them all together, then you will have supercharged soil where you will produce a harvest 30, 60, and 100 fold. This is what we want, right? This is the kind of life we want. Do you want people to avoid confronting you this kind of way? I hope not. And, and do you want to live with people that are not confronted this way? So you will have to be one of those people to step in or step up to the plate for the people you care about as well by confronting them in a healthy, courageous way. So I started by saying that I was um, a uh, regular practitioner of unhealthy correction when I was younger. It just basically was being argumentative and confrontational. But I'm learning with time to do this courageous confrontation instead. And um, I think my heart is better, and the people around me's hearts are better for it, as increasingly we all do it together. So let's pray.